0: Beth Bennett.
1: And I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 15th, 2017.
0: Coming up, a peek at some recent research into aging what causes us to decline physically, and some good news about ways to mitigate the aging process. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
1: You may have read about the first instance of gene editing in the U.S. of a human embryo that was reported last month. If you wondered what everyone else thought about this experiment, you weren't alone. Earlier this year, National Academy of Sciences released a report on the science ethics and governance of human genome editing. The report separated gene editing by purpose and by heritability of the genetic alteration. The purpose can be therapeutic to treat or prevent a disease or focused on enhancement, such as increasing height or athletic performance, purposes unrelated to treating or preventing disease. As for the heritability, edits to the human genome. Can be to somatic, which are non reproductive cells, or heritable germline cells. The Academy's report indicated substantial differences in public acceptance of these different types of applications, but did not report actual attitudes. In order to determine, current attitudes towards these aspects of gene editing, a team of science communicators from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Temple University analyzed survey data from 1,600 U.S. adults collected in December 2016 and January 2017. Approximately two-thirds of respondents viewed both somatic therapy and germline therapy as acceptable, whereas only one-third accepted enhancements to either cell type. This group of researchers further exploited the data to answer the question, what generated these attitudes? Among those reporting low religious guidance... Three-quarters expressed some support for treatment applications and almost half for enhancement applications. By contrast, of those reporting a high level of religious affiliation in their daily lives, the corresponding levels of support are markedly lower. Half expressed support for treatment and one-quarter expressed support for enhancement. Basic knowledge of genome editing Based on answers to nine factual questions, was also predictive of level of support. For those unable to correctly answer any of the nine questions, 32% expressed support for treatment and 19% did so for enhancement. At the other end of the scale, Those able to correctly answer six or more questions expressed much higher levels of support, with 76% indicating some support for treatment and 41% indicating support for enhancement. Highly religious and less knowledgeable respondents were doubtful about the ability of the scientific community to provide enough oversight by themselves— whereas those with low religious affiliation or high knowledge levels had more faith in scientists. But a large proportion of both groups, knowledgeable and religious, embraced the idea of consulting the public. This study was reported last week in the journal Science.
0: Do you sometimes feel that the distinction between dream and reality is blurred? Well, it may be because our brains don't always report what our senses tell us about the world. And if you can't trust your senses, how do you tell reality from illusion? A new study by researchers at Yale found that the brain is constantly matching up past experiences with current sensory input. To test the hypothesis that hallucinations result when the brain relies more on expectations about the world than its sensory evidence, the researchers used four different groups. First, healthy people controls. Second, people with psychosis who don't hear voices. Third, schizophrenics who do hear voices. And fourth, people such as self-described psychics who regularly hear voices but don't find them disturbing. The subjects were trained to associate an image of a checkboard with a tone. Then the researchers varied the volume of the tone, sometimes tuning it out entirely. The participants were asked to press a button when they heard it. They could change the pressure on the button to indicate how sure they were that they were actually hearing the tone. While doing all this, the subjects were lying in MRI scanners, giving the researchers a snapshot of brain activity as they made their choices. The researchers hypothesized that people who hear voices would be more likely to believe in auditory hallucinations, and that's exactly what they found. Both schizophrenics and psychics were almost five times more likely to report hearing a non-existent tone than the controls. They were also more confident that they had heard the tone when none was there. Both the psychics and people with schizophrenia also showed abnormal neuronal activity in several brain regions responsible for monitoring our internal representations of reality. The more severe a person's hallucinations were, for example, the less activity they displayed in the cerebellum. That's a wrinkled nodule at the back of the brain. The cerebellum plays a critical role in planning and coordinating future movements, a process that requires constantly updating one's perception of the outside world. The findings confirm that, when it comes to how we perceive the world, our ideas and beliefs can easily overpower our senses. The work also suggests that the cerebellum is a key checkpoint against this distortion. Studies like this one will help clinicians predict who is likely to develop schizophrenia, allowing them to seek early treatment. These results could also direct experimental therapies such as transcranial magnetic stimulation, which suppresses or boosts brain activity in targeted areas through electrical currents. This work was reported last week in the journal Science.
1: Fisk Planetarium will be closed during the eclipse next Monday, August 21st. However, they will have a few solar telescopes on the lawn outside the Fisk Planetarium front doors, staffed by astronomers, and they will have eclipse glasses for sale while supplies last. Note that parking on campus will be extremely limited due to CU move-in.
0: Curious about science at the university here in Boulder? Stop by Henderson Museum's lower level and visit the Bio Lounge to learn more about what faculty are studying. The Bio Lounge is an inviting, relaxing, and totally unique space at the Museum of Natural History. An amalgamation of exhibit, cabinet of curiosities, coffee bar, lounge, and venue for science, art, and music. The Bio Lounge brings a new approach to the art and science of biodiversity. The Bio Lounge was designed as a growing and changing lounge exhibit space featuring exhibits, electronic and live presentations, and programs that will highlight the work of faculty, staff, and collaborators at the University of Boulder. Exhibits and programs change frequently, so visit often. Stop by for a cup of coffee or tea to relax, explore, and find inspiration.
1: Me till quarter to three. Would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64?
0: Last week I spoke with Dr. Gordon Lithgow, a research professor at the Buck Institute on Aging in California. His work focuses on the mechanisms of aging by identifying agents that extend lifespan or prevent age-related disease. He has discovered a number of factors that can lengthen life in a microscopic nematode worm, and he's applying these findings to studies in human cell cultures and mice. Welcome to the show, Gordon. It's really a pleasure to talk to you, and I think it would be interesting to start off by considering some of the theoretical aspects of aging. Like, why do we get old? What is it in our evolutionary background, and what does that mean in terms of mitigation?
2: Hi, Beth. This is all very interesting. Yeah, it's kind of weird, actually, if you think about aging, and especially if you think about natural selection. You know, everything in biology seems to have a purpose, and there's this exquisite machinery happening in our cells and our tissues making life possible, all crafted to, to perfection by natural selection. And then you've got ageing, which doesn't look like perfection at all. Why (laughs) would natural selection perfect the the animal for the animal to just slowly fall apart and accumulate damage and get sick? It's very strange. Uh, But but there are answers. And actually, Peter Medawar, back in the 1950s, came up with some pretty good ideas about the evolutionary origins of ageing. And the basic idea is this, that that animals really don't get old in the wild. Um, They either die of predation or, or, or disease, And therefore, ageing really isn't a feature of normal biology. It's only a feature of animals that are protected in zoos or or people or, or humans. And so the idea is that natural selection is not really perfecting anything to do with aging at all, because it never sees it, if you like. What it's really doing is perfecting reproduction and growth and all those good things that are required to get the genes into the next generation. And it so happens that those genes may have detrimental side effects. And that's really what we think aging is. It's, It's almost like a side effect of life. It's perfecting the early part of life is actually detrimental to the later part. And it's only as we've come into societies where people are allowed to age, that we've really seen aging.
0: Right. So there's some really interesting work that's been done on... Uh, the evolution of menopause in several different species and, you know, the implications then being extended to humans. And it's kind of cool to think about how there is this one aspect of getting older that natural selection is seeing and deciding to pick up on and preserve aging females in species like humans and whales in order to um, facilitate their reproduction.
2: Yes, and actually, you know, it, it feels like a, a powerful idea because you've got this notion of the grandmother effect, that if if you have menopause, then there's, there's potentially time to actually, uh, you know, look after the grandchildren. Um, however, this is very controversial, and some evolutionary biologists have, have suggested that really we haven't gone through enough generations since... You know, the Stone Age to really when life expectancies got out to mm. the you know the sort of age of menopause, we just haven't had enough generations for this to to evolve, and so it's actually a quite controversial subject.
0: Right? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's leave the controversy and move on to some aspects that I think will be really interesting to the listeners, and that, namely, is what can we do about it, and. I remember years ago you came up with this idea um, that it it turned out someone else had originated in the 50s, the idea of stress, and you really ran with that. So can you tell us a little bit about how stress can actually prolong one's life?
2: Sure. I mean, in the last 25 years, we've learned an awful lot about the genes that determine lifespan in simple little animals in the lab and worms and flies and so on. And, and a lot of that information points towards stress and response to stress as being something important in aging. And, uh, I, you know, we, we, we all know that, that, that psychological stress feels damaging. It feels like there's, there's some sort of pain or damage inflicted by it. And I, but actually, there's also biological stress. And this is a physical stress of, of changing environments, uh, changing diets, being exposed to sunlight and so on. And way back, it seemed uh, that the stress was playing a part in the longevity of certain worms that carried mutations that extended their lifespan. These worms seemed to be super resistant to stress. And so it kind of made sense that somehow the, the, the gene was involved in a process that was determining how resistant the animal was to stress and that that could have an overlap with aging. Because if you're repairing damage that occurs during a stress, then it's also possible you might be able to repair that damage during normal aging. And it turns out the damage that accumulates during stress is very similar to the damage that accumulates during normal aging. Things like uh, mutations in the DNA or damage to proteins. Proteins lose their shape with age. And that's also a feature of of some stresses. So, yes, so stress and aging seem to go hand in hand. It's almost like aging itself is like a long, prolonged stress. Now, Beth, you said that stress can extend lifespan as well, and that's true. So the general guide here is that long, chronic stress It shortens lifespan and is detrimental, but a short, sharp, acute stress has the effect of turning on the stress response mechanisms in our cell and that can have a beneficial effect as long as the stress actually goes away then so you you can stress simple animals like worms and flies early in their life it's not good for them, there's damage but actually with the efforts to repair that damage you also kick in mechanisms that extend lifespan
0: Yeah and it makes sense to me in terms of a slightly different analogy that when you work out like you go to the gym, lift weights, go for a run something like that, you actually damage your muscles. So you're stressing your muscles a little bit and then they respond by repairing themselves. And in the process, they get stronger and more resilient.
2: Right. I actually think it's exactly analogous. It's a very good example. And you're probably aware of those studies where um, if, you ha- if you're if you taking antioxidants, that can actually prevent the, um, pre- it prevents the accumulation of damage in the first place, but also it actually prevents the benefits of exercise. Right. Because you're not allowing that damage to take place that would that would you know cause yourself to ramp up their defense systems and the repair systems, so yes, a really good example
0: yeah, and that's a really powerful outcome that you just mentioned about the antioxidants because that's indirect or circumstantial evidence that it's really a, or these reactive oxygen species or these um these products of the use of oxygen in our tissues that are some of the most damaging or potentially stressful ingredients that we have to to deal
2: with. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the powerful ideas, again, from the, the 50s for, for aging was the idea that aging was the result of the accumulation of molecular damage from these oxygen radicals and uh, it's actually been quite a difficult mechanism to tie down and there's, there are some conflicting studies but, but I, th- I think when, when it all you know, comes home to roost I think, I think we'll find oxygen radical chemistry is really important in the ageing process and also actually important in lots of the chronic diseases of ageing and I think this is an important point that ageing itself is now increasingly be seen as a cause of, of chronic diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's and sarcopenia and, and so on and and it's a common cause, and that's, that's, that's kind of interesting. And so maybe the, the, the common mechanism is to do with uh, oxygen radical chemistry.
0: Yeah, and we're kind of stuck with that because we have to breathe. So we have to deal with these things. So if we can find behaviors or um, interventions that will lessen that effect, then it, it, it's such a benefit. I mean, it cuts both ways. We get, to do, we get to live like we need to with oxygen, but we can extend our lifespans and be healthier.
2: Yeah, and I, I think many of the interventions that we and others uh, at the Buck Institute are, are discovering that, that, that slow down ageing or prevent an ageing pathology, I think a lot of it boils down to preventing the accumulation of, of damage. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of like one way to think about it is, is um, cellular or organismal homeostasis, You know, because we, we have all these mechanisms that try to repair damage and try to restore whatever changes happened in our bodies back to normal. And as, as we age, it appears these homeostatic mechanisms are degraded, uh, you know, over and over. And when we end up where our tissues and cells are very vulnerable to the damage and, uh, and as a result, we see both the, the aging process and the disease pathology come on hand in hand.
0: Right. Yeah. So it's interesting all uh, the, the ways that you have been working on in terms of testing interventions. So... Um, You use this little tiny worm called C. elegans, and I think people need a little convincing to believe that experiments that are done in worms can have any relevance for humans.
2: Yeah. And actually, when I started working on on C. elegans, I I suspected that we we would would not find things of significance to humans, but it was was just really interesting. The reason we work on this tiny worm is it only lives for about 20 days. And so you can do lots of experiments on aging and find lots of genes, as as many researchers have done over the last couple of decades, that determine the lifespan. And shockingly, you can double the lifespan of the organism. You can increase it fivefold, 500%. So... There's been a lot of exciting work done on manipulating aging there. And actually, it turns out to be relevant to humans. And it's a bit of a surprise. But genes that were first discovered in the worm determining that 20-day lifespan, well, variants of those genes have been found in humans to um, be involved in whether you, you, you progress to being a centenarian or not. So certain forms of these genes are associated with extreme long life in humans. And, and, you know, I, I think actually aging is such a fundamental process that you can almost study it anywhere. Anywhere that the that system, that's any biological species that's aging, it's relevant for humans because it's just one of those conserved fundamental processes. Uh, and it, it, it turns out that many of the, chemical compounds as well and this is something we've moved to more recently where we're looking for chemical compounds that slow ageing in, in the tiny worm and many of those compounds are, are known to affect ageing in, in mouse models for example so we, we, we think that we're doing work that's actually very relevant which was, as I say, quite a surprise to me
0: yeah, and this is a great organism to use for screening, because since we do share so many of the genetic pathways, and, and they're so teeny, you can put a single worm into a tiny little, almost microscopic petri dish, and so you can test thousands of different compounds in a very short That's period right. of time. That's
2: right. In fact, we tested over 30,000 compounds, diverse chemical structures for for structures that would increase lifespan in the worm, and we found scores and scores of these compounds and uh, you know with some of them we, we go further and with our colleagues at, at the, at the BAC who work on disease models of, of ageing uh, we, can, we can look at whether slowing ageing also affects disease onset and so just uh, an example we published a number of years ago was an amyloid binding protein uh, compound so this is a, a compound that binds material proteinaceous material associated with Alzheimer's disease this compound was discovered in a worm to slow aging. But when we looked in mouse models, neither two unpublished studies, uh, but, but our colleagues Simon Meloff and Julie Anderson looked at both osteoporosis in mice and Parkinson's disease in mice. And the preliminary data is that actually it protects against both those diseases. this is remarkable because the worm doesn't have bones and it it barely has a brain (laughs) with 300 neurons. But you find something that that targets aging itself and the possible outcome is that you've actually been able to prevent age-related diseases. Right. So it it could be a rare example. It might not happen again, but it's kind of exciting because it, it really suggests to us that there's a way to find possible new therapies or preventions for, you know, important human diseases. But you can start with something like a tiny worm or a fly or, or a human cell in culture. And as long as you, you target that fundamental aging process, then there's a possibility you're, you're going to prevent different diseases.
0: Yeah, that's truly amazing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I like to think about it like childhood diseases 100 years ago, where we, we eventually worked out that uh, you know, all of the infectious disease was caused by just that, was co- caused by microbes. And once you've got that understanding of multiple diseases all caused by one thing, you can come up with general strategies like vaccines and antibiotics. And, uh, and suddenly, you know, you've got all those infectious diseases of childhood really eradicated for the most part in developed countries. And it may be that we're kind of at that point with aging where we've, we've discovered that, that a lot of human diseases are caused by this one thing called aging. And we may be able to come up with general strategies now that, that targets multiple disease states.
0: Right, right. So are, do you have plans in the works for extending some of the uh, studies that you've been doing in worms to mouse models?
2: Yes, we, we certainly are doing that right now. In fact, beyond that, our, our colleagues at um, uh, Einstein and the Mayo Clinic and beyond are, are talking for the first time about clinical trials on aging itself. And, and this comes in part from the realization that some drugs are already out there. And the, the example that everyone's using right now is metformin. Right. This is a drug, it's an active diabetic drug. But um, it, it, some studies emerged that people who are on this drug were actually living longer than people without diabetes. And so there's been some, some work into the incidence of diseases within this group and there is a, a serious effort now to conduct a clinical trial on metformin and looking at a, a disease events. You know, So if, if you're on metformin, are you actually protected against Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, you know, a cancers, a cardiovascular disease and so on? So a wide range of age related diseases so that 's a very serious proposition that that people are raising money for right now to actually test whether a compound again discovered in animal models and this one happens to be a, a known a, a drug a well tested safe human drug, if something like that can actually slow aging and that would be that would really be incredible and, and probably change the way that we all think about. Biomedical research and how we go about biomedical research, and not just about human diseases of late life in general.
0: Right. And so, my understanding of how metformin works is that it lowers blood sugar. So, I'm wondering if there's a similar mechanism maybe between metformin and dietary restriction, which also acts to extend life in a, a variety of different organisms.
2: Absolutely. And that, that's certainly what people are thinking. And it's not clear if dietary restriction works in humans. There have been some studies suggesting that, that there are at least changes in physiology that, that might be consistent with it. And there may be some dangers as well. But, but, but yes, that's right. that If you have a compound that, that is mimicking diet restriction, then it's likely that you would be protected against num- a number of diseases.
0: Right. So I saw one of the the works that you did. Well, there are several that were really interesting. One was on vitamin D and the other one was on iron. And I find this fascinating that iron, this is something that we've been told for years we should have more of in our diet and everything's enriched with iron. But it seems like in the worm, iron is actually has some counterintuitive effects.
2: Yeah, actually, it's what, what we see happening there is the iron shortens the lifespan of the worm. Uh, And and also, um, it accelerates aging pathology, so so the the changes in in proteins during aging, this loss of protein shape that I mentioned earlier, that's accelerated, greatly accelerated if you're feeding an iron-rich diet to the worm. Now, unfortunately, like many things, iron's absolutely necessary for life, so we can't go on an iron-free diet. But there are certain circumstances where we should be thinking about it and and one in particular is parkinson's disease and this this comes from julie anderson's work again at the buck where she showed a number of years ago that um iron was a critical factor in damaging the 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 powerhouses of the cell the mitochondria and and that led directly to the death of the neurons that are lost in parkinson's disease the dopaminergic neurons and so when, when, when Julie's lab controlled the levels of iron, both by manipulating a, an iron binding protein, and also with a drug that binds iron, they, they were able to show protection against Parkinson's disease. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's like many things in life. You have to get the balance right. And, and there are certain circumstances where iron overload is, is really not a good idea. And it's probably true for other metals as well.
0: Exactly. Right. So, Gordon, are there certain things you do in your life that are protective or predictive of longevity?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it it became really obvious a few years ago that that exercise was not just about, you know, feeling healthy and being able to get up the stairs faster and so on, but exercise has profound effects on our physiology that that are anti-aging. And uh, this is something that's really been recognized more recently, is that uh, exercise itself can stop or even reverse molecular signatures of aging. Um, Really powerful work, and that, that really suggests that, you know, that, that it's very natural that we have a highly active life and it's highly beneficial. Um, so, so, yeah, so I try and exercise more than I certainly used to, and, uh, and it's a much more serious proposition now. Um, but the other thing, you mentioned vitamin D, and actually, um, you know, th- there are studies on vitamin D all the time. And I think most people will realize that if, if, you're, if you're low in vitamin D levels, then you're actually at risk for a whole range of, of diseases. Now, it turns out these diseases are actually the ones we associate with aging, and, uh, and we discovered and published a study earlier this year showing that, that vitamin D actually slows the aging process in the tiny roundworms, in the, in the C. elegans worms, and we thought that was intriguing, and we, we began to show this data and some other experiments to clinicians, and they got kind of excited because, in many ways, we, we didn't understand why vitamin D deficiency would result in risk to both, say, cancer and neurodegenerative disease. I mean, the the diseases are so different from each other, there just seem to be no link. Well, we think the link might be aging. So if you're deficient, it's possible that, and this is purely theoretical for humans right now, but if you're deficient, it's possible that what's happening is that you're in that accelerated aging syndrome, an accelerated aging rate, and therefore you're at elevated risk for multiple diseases. So it's, it's an interesting idea that came out of the worm experiments, which, again, it's always delightful when you find something that could be relevant for humans. But it's an idea I think some clinicians are taking very seriously. And so, yeah, I take vitamin D in the morning.
0: <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad to hear that because I do, too. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, Gordon, this has been fascinating. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I